Hello and welcome to the Good Code podcast series. My name is Torken and I work with strategic design here in Copenhagen. In my daily life, I head up the design and innovation studio Kirk Hatchenblum. I believe companies together can help lift the great challenges facing our planet, from global warming to local poverty. In this podcast series, I'm collecting inspiration from companies and individuals already working from a do-good business model. My ambition is to become wiser on the topic and more so, share practical tools and tricks that can inspire more people like yourself to leave a positive dent in our world through their work. In this chapter of the series, I'm exploring a topic close to heart, the four-day work week, wanting to understand the impact it has on people and our planet. Our company is founded on the philosophy of a 30-hour work week, but what are the actual implications of only working four days a week? What do employees and clients think? Does it make a difference to the environment? And how does it affect the financial bottom line of a company? I've stepped outside our own small company bubble and interviewed a number of experts on the topic. Please enjoy. While in London some weeks back, I sat down with Jeremy Myerson to have a chat about how work is changing. Jeremy is a leading expert on the future of work and has been exploring the topic since the 80s as journalist, researcher and author of over 20 books and acts as a trusted advisor for businesses and nations across the globe. I first met Jeremy in 2005 as my mentor at the Helen Hamlin Center for Design, where I spent a year researching design and innovation practices, exploring how spaces, tools and new ways of working can foster innovation within large organizations. Looking back, I realized these activities are crucial for succeeding with a four-day work week, and I felt Jeremy could help shed some light on this. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what brought you to where you're right now. So um, I have a background in journalism and uh, research. Um, I'm a graduate of the Royal College of Art. Mm -hmm. um, So I've always been uh, focused on architecture and design. The workplace has been a big uh, obsession of mine for kind of getting on for 40 years. So uh, in the 1980s, I uh, was the founder of Design Week magazine in the UK. In the 1990s, I uh, co-founded the Helen Hamlin Centre for Design, where you, Toki, worked uh, as a research associate. Um, We were looking at inclusive design um, and working with new graduates of the college on a whole range of applied projects. And in recent years, I've been involved in setting up a healthcare uh, design centre at St Mary's Hospital uh, in London. and also developing something called the WorkTech Academy, which is a network of leading companies in the workspace arena, looking at the future of work, the impact of automation and AI, and and the relationship between people, technology, behavior, and space. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty busy still thinking about how we're going to work in the future. Tell us more about the, like the work tech, because I think for me that's, that's like a new chapter in life in your life. Um, yeah, uh, the work tech uh, um, story is an interesting one because I am from a kind of design architectural background and I was going to conferences called The Future of Work and they didn't mention technology and they didn't mention behavior. They just talked about building facades and spaces and furniture and finishes. And that for me was not the future of work. And simultaneously, uh, in parallel, uh, a friend of mine uh, called Philip Ross was going to technology companies 
and they were talking about widgets and devices and systems. They didn't mention behavior or people or space uh, or architecture. So we were both getting two completely partial visions of the future of work, and we were very dissatisfied. And we decided that we would, one night over a beer, we decided that we would launch our own conference, and it was called WorkTech. And this would bring people, technology, and place into the same um, talking shop, really. Um, we would make every case study look at workplace from a holistic point of view, from the point of view of behavior, from the point of view of technology systems, and the point of view of, of architectural design. And, and this, this kind of nexus attracted a lot of people. So now we have the WorkTech conference in about 25 cities around the world. We're coming to Copenhagen uh, in, in March 2020, um, but we're in other cities around the world. Um, and we have an online platform called WorkTech Academy, which is the knowledge and learning and research um, platform for thinking about how we'll work tomorrow. So this has been a big focus of my work in recent years. We have a lot of companies in the network um, and they range from people in the supply chain like furniture manufacturers. They range from people in the supply chain like furniture manufacturers and lighting people and smart building systems people mm. to large um, government and corporate organizations who you know, manage office buildings and are thinking about new ways of working. Um, and so we try and be um, a place of knowledge and insight and thinking and asking the questions about how we'll work in the future. And of course, we're in a period of enormous change. So this, is, this has been my life for the last few years. Cool. And um, so you say that enormous change. What, what's, what's changing? Like, we, we, have things not been changing like forever? Or? <coughs> They've always been changing, yeah. but I think... I think the digital disruption uh, is not simply about um, the digital disruption is not simply about changing work processes and the relationship with customers and companies. It's fundamentally changing how real estate is managed and and the purpose of offices and why you go there. If you can work anywhere, why do you need to go to an office? And when people come together, how do you bring them together? For what purpose? Um, so I think there's always been change, but some things have been quite slow in changing. So we've had hierarchical management. Um, had, we've had hierarchical management, you know, for a century, but now we're having servant leadership and uh, the, the pyramid's getting inverted and new forms of leadership, I think, are very, very interesting because... You know, it's not about command and control or supervision in the traditional sense. Um, it's about um, shared purpose and, and, and analyzing outputs. And, and there's a whole set of new digital tools to support that. So the whole management and leadership process is changing. And then the relationship between the workplace and the city, that's changing. So offices used to be, uh, offices used to be hermetically sealed buildings. Um, so there was the city and in the middle of it was this workplace which was guarded by men with braid on their uniforms and, uh, and you'd have to wear a lanyard and pass through security systems to get into the building. Now there's a much more permeable relationship developing between the city, the district and, 
and the workspace. And people no longer want to work inside the corporate confines of the organisation. They want to work in co-working spaces and clubs and in social arenas. And so the bleeding edge between what is public, what is privileged and what is private to the employing organisation is changing. Um, and then the technology, you know, there's never been an era, not since the invention of the typewriter, the telephone, the elevator and the, and the um, adding machine, has there been so many technologies disrupting work. You've got AI, you've got automation, you know, you've, 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 got, you've got sensors and beacons. And if you're a workspace designer, you know, whatever you decide to do, whatever you choose and whatever you build will be will be monitored and analysed and the data will be there to show who's using the space, which spaces they prefer to others, or what times of day. Um, so we're having more data going into organisations now. So yes, there's always been change, but not the perfect storm of change that we've got right now. Can you talk about a little bit about the sector about designing workspaces? Because I think, like, what's, what does that space look like? Or who's, who are these people doing this yeah. and, and why are you doing it? Well, there are the people who have been designing workspaces are still doing it. I mean, most companies hire architects and designers who are specialised in the field. But what what is going into offices is so different now. So there's a big trend towards health and well-being in the workplace. Offices used to be designed for efficiency, and people were treated like cogs in a machine. And if you can only make the machine go a bit faster, you'll be more productive. And actually, what is happening is a move away from chasing productivity at an end in itself, an output, and approaching workplace design from the point of view of making people feel psychologically safer, more comfortable, and happier. And if they're healthier and happier, then they may work a bit harder and a bit longer and show more loyalty to the company, and that will lead to productivity so you know how is that manifesting itself it's manifesting itself in biophilia the outside being brought in and the inside being brought outside so far more gardens and uh, and semi-public spaces and um, uh, you know vegetable patches that people tend far more far more open kitchens where you can cook your own fresh food um, far more spaces to escape from work, like yoga classes and uh, um, um, privacy zones, safe spaces, uh, contemplation areas, um, so that people can they can cognitively restore during the day, and a far more greater sorry a far greater variety of settings and spaces, so you just don't come in and sit at a desk and stare at the screen all day which happens to a lot of us, um, but you've got different spaces to do different things. So there may be zones to collaborate with others, spaces which are very quiet, like a library, where you can get your head down and do focused work, and then spaces which are about social socialising in the informal sense. And I think the co-working movement, the rise of the WeWork and its competitors, and the beer at five o'clock, and the idea that... that that the workspace is not about work, but is actually about socialising and networks and who you meet and all of that. That's had a big influence. So that what you've got 
whole workspaces that are now beginning to look like cafes or hotel lobbies and less like traditional workplaces with rows of desks. And you mentioned that the, so the companies are benefiting from this, but are, are some of them doing it for other reasons than bottom line? I think that some companies are see a direct, some companies see a direct relationship between investing into health and well-being and the bottom line. Others are doing it for other reasons, reputation, image, and in the race for talent, particularly digital coding and software talent, you get traditional employers like lawyers and banks and insurance companies and pharma companies who are having to go after the same digital talent that the tech companies are going after. And of course, the tech sector was very advanced in merging workspace and hospitality space and free food and innovation zones and you know cool trendy kind of uh, uh, a more informal um, uh, ambience around the workplace so everyone's jumped on that bandwagon so you've got a kind of international style of kind of uh, new wave workplaces um, which is interesting because if everyone's offering the same thing how do you differentiate and uh, so what, what do you think the next thing is going to be if people offer them? I think, I think, I think people used to um, really compete on workspace and people, people wanted um, their staff to come to work and be in a really good environment. And that's kind of a legacy from the old command and control. It, it seems benign. Um, but, but it's still a form of surveillance, having people in one place. I think the next frontier will be to put workplaces where people, closer to where people live, um, and offer more flexibility so that people don't have to come in for a five-day week. Um, they can go to a satellite office. They can work partially from home. Collaboration technologies will improve um, so that being present in the workplace will become less of an issue. Of course, a lot of people conversely like to go to a workplace because um, that is where their social relationships are formed. That is That gives purpose and meaning to their day. And if they're marooned at home all the time, especially younger people who probably aren't living in really nice accommodation with lots of space. They're probably, if they're in cities, they're living in cramped accommodation and they're very glad to get to the nice offices with the classic, you know, mid-century American classic furniture that they can't afford in their own homes, but they get it at work. So there's, there's a little bit of give and take going on between flexible working and wanting to be in the workplace. Yeah. Um, but, but there's something happening around flexibility and, and wrapping the work style more closely around your own lifestyle, especially if you're going to have a family and kids. It's very stressful for people trying to hold down these full-time monster jobs and look after ailing parents and young kids, and they're called the sandwich generation, and they make up a lot of the workforce. So in, in our company, um, we are, we, we've been working with a four-day work week for the last yeah. uh, year, mm. um, and that's... What we're seeing is 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 a, is a trend or a new like kind of experimentation around like 
you know, can we actually work less time and yeah. get, get the same kind of work done? Yeah. Uh, and I was just thinking, because that was really, a really interesting point on the fact that people actually go to work to maybe get away from home. Yeah. Um, so what are your thoughts about like a four-day work week and, and like the whole trend of working less through the last century? Well, I think we work more now than we ever have. This whole idea that digital technology would create leisure time and, and automation and robotics would, would allow us to work less because all the menial tasks would be done by AI and, and robots. That's not happened. And we're working more and because and we know that we're on 24-7 and because you know it's all coming through on smartphones. That's how work is being pivoted now. Um, I'm a great believer in working less because all types of work, not just physical labour in factories or mines, all types of work, especially modern cognitive knowledge work, is very tiring. Trying to think up new things, trying to write, trying to analyse data, it is very, very tiring. And we work too much, we're too work-oriented, we neglect some of our fundamental relationships in the process of working in order to be economically productive and, and ensure uh, a living. Um, and the evidence from the very few and limited trials that have gone on, I know there's a company in Scotland um, called Pursuit Marketing, which implemented a permanent four-day uh, work week and their productivity went up 30%. And I think Fridays are already a dead day um, for work. You know, in the city of London, the place is deserted. Most people work from home on a Friday. And that's considered a standard perk of the job. Um, people are done. You know, they're tired. And if they had a three-day weekend, they could probably be a lot more socially productive and volunteer more and do other things. And you would spread out. Um, there'd be more jobs. Um, but it's a political hot potato in the British election that we had at the end of 2019, the Labour Party floated the idea of a four-day working week, um, saying that people in the NHS are exhausted, our National Health Service, exhausted after four days, especially if you're a porter or a nurse doing very long shift work. And to go to a four-day week would be a very attractive proposition. You'd have a more motivated, a healthier workforce. And of course... The commentary around the four-day week was pitiful. It was pathetic. It kind of cast labour as idealists and um, how could we possibly afford a four-day week? Wasn't that pie in the sky and proof that they were really um, not thinking straight? But it's actually a very logical proposition. You know, you spread employment further, you create more opportunities for more people, and you have a more motivated, a healthier, a less stressed out workforce. Um, and of course, when people get older, um, the first thing they try to do is to try to negotiate a four day week so that they have more time to recover at the weekend, which you need as you get older. Um, uh, because it does, the, the recovery time from working uh, takes longer. And of course, we've insisted on building our offices with you know, modern materials, wooden floors, uh, concrete walls, big expanses of glass, which are very poor in terms of acoustic properties. We don't have enough hemp or wool or, or 
absorbent materials in our offices, so they're very noisy. And for older people in particular, that gets very tiring. And our lighting is often uniform and at a very high lux level. That's very tiring. So noise and light and disruption in open plan space where people are constantly coming up to you and they don't know the protocols of open plan working because nobody's ever described it to them. So that you're, you, you've got a noisy place, you've got uh, an overlit place, and you've got a place with a lot of distractions. No wonder you get tired. So a four-day week makes a lot of sense on a lot of levels, but culturally, I question whether we're really ready to accept it. It's interesting because the things you mentioned there, um, now I've been looking at some other companies embracing four-day work week, yeah. and they are trying to optimize the four days as much as possible. So they're yeah. doing a lot of these things about yeah. you know, how to create better environments, yeah. for, for focus, concentration. Yeah, yeah. If you've only got four days to optimize your workflow, then you think a lot harder about how you design it and the kind of spaces you need and the kind of acoustic properties, the kind of lighting, the kind of um, amenities that will support your health. Because you've only got four days to do it. And, you know, we've got into a model whereby we've got people who work for so long. 40 hours is just the minimum. Um, there's an awful lot of medical data that shows that working beyond the 40-hour limit um, really damages your health, it strains your eyes, there's more chance of strokes or heart attacks over a considerable period of time. There's a lot of medical evidence. And in terms of evolutionary biology, we, we lived outside as a species, and now we spend hours and hours, you know, most of our lives cooped up indoors, hunched off over a computer, and that's not very healthy for us. And, you know, we need to spend a day walking in the woods, really, to, to recover. Um, but we don't have time to do that. So, yeah. you know, we're busy doing our, busy going to the laundrette or doing our washing or going to the supermarket at the weekend. We've just about, we've just about got our act together and we're back at work again, back on the treadmill. And many people work uh, at home. Over the weekend, they'll work on a Sunday evening to get ahead with their emails before Monday. So we've made a real kind of rod for our own back. And I think a four-day week would be a sane and sensible um, step in a different direction in which, you know, we allow ourselves as a species to recover. Could you imagine taking your work tech and turning that into a work less... Um, studio like like what are like how do we do that well I have to say the work tech um, it's very interesting because um, people say to me oh work tech you must be really advanced in terms of new ways of working and we're very flexible on one level on another level we've been a victim of our own success the more events we do with a small team and the bigger our platform becomes, the more work we set ourselves. So I think we are, we are a symptom of, sorry, um, the work tech, we have become a reflection of some of the symptoms that we are describing. So I wouldn't say that we've got it right. And that's very difficult because we're very aware as a group of, of good practice, but then implementing it in your own organization 
is quite difficult. So what, what's the biggest barrier for you to do that? I think it's volume of work. You can say everyone does a four-day week, but then what if you've got a, an event and you've got to work in the weekend running up to that event to set it up and get it all organised? And um, You know, you can't be... Uh, strict about these things you've got to go where the work is and you know in a creative knowledge economy it's sometimes very difficult and what's really sad I think about the promise of technology if you look at the tech companies what's coming out of them now is some very bad stories about workplace culture the bullying at Uber the misogyny at Google um, uh, and the trouble that Facebook has uh, been having with the local community uh, um, in terms of developing their campus. You know, um, these tech companies were founded on the idea of a different promise of work and relationship with the city and relationship with the local community. And they're the bad corporate guys after all. And they're doing, you know, and they're mistreating their staff in some areas. And so it's very hard to deliver the utopian dream about the future of work. Mm. I recognise that um, I think the world we live in is, is like, I think we're kind of very flexible and mm. sometimes we work. So, so we have like a f the Friday off. Yeah. Uh, but even then, sometimes a client would fly in for a meeting on a Friday yeah. and then we're, you know, do we say no to them? Yeah. Or do we take another day off another? Yeah. What do you do? And I think there's a whole lot of like cultural negotiation to be figured out here. Like, yeah. How do you yeah. do that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, what I've discovered, and I've done a lot of design work and design research around workplace and work and the future of work. It's one thing to build a new environment. It's another thing to get people to use it in the way intended, and. We understand inanimate things like desks and lights and windows and, and spatial layouts. But what we don't understand enough about, especially in the design community, is the subtle interactions of how people behave in relationship to each other and the tolerances and the accommodations that people make between them. And also the absence of protocols um, so that people don't really know how to behave in these new environments. And a lot of people are much happier being given a desk and told to wear a suit <laughs> than being in a dressed-down environment where they're not quite sure what they should wear. Um, and, and they're meant to wander around the organisation with a cappuccino and network with people. You know, they'd rather be sitting at a desk answering emails you know, <laughs> uh, because they're more comfortable with that. So it's quite difficult, and I see a lot of a lot of old old material being poured into new vessels, in, in, you know, and and there's not a very comfortable fit. Um, I remember years ago, um, uh, SAS, the Scandinavian Airline Systems, they moved to a new building just outside Stockholm, designed in the late 1980s by Niels Torp, the Norwegian architect. And this was a really different type of building. It's very familiar now. It had a central street. It was solar lit. 
Um, there were internal trees, there were coffee shops, there were benches, and the idea is that you were meant to promenade along and managers would talk to the staff and it was all very convivial. And upstairs were the offices where people sat at desks, but they would come down to the boulevard. And, it, and the boulevard ended at an artificial lake with seats outside, very Scandinavian, utterly gorgeous. First few weeks, nobody went into the boulevard. They were too scared. Are we allowed to walk up and down during work hours or just lunchtime? Until the chief executive sent a memo to all staff saying, I want to see you in the boulevard at least three times a day. And they said, okay, that's an order. <laughs> we can now go down the boulevard three times a day and we'll make sure we do it. And that's just the lack of a kind of, under, you know, they've been working in one type of environment yeah. to one set of rules. And then they got handed something that kind of blew their minds, really. They didn't know how to deal with it. And that's often the case. It reminds me of a story I heard about a company that actually brought a four-day work week. Mm. And some of the employees would still turn up Friday. Mm. And then I think the boss found out that the reason was that they hadn't told their wife yet. Yeah. So they'd like, they didn't know what to do on Fridays. Yeah. So they'd still go to work and like, yeah. And broke the news at home that, that they yeah. were off. Well, I remember a, um, I remember visiting a, a British engineering company who had a big office in Shanghai. And I went and visited on a Saturday afternoon. And the office was completely full. And people were wandering about and they were on the, they were playing ping pong and they were on their computers playing computer games. And I said, why are they in on a Saturday afternoon? And they said, oh, they're not working. Um, but this office is much warmer and nicer than where they're living in Shanghai. <laughs> so they just come in and hang. You know, we let them come in and they bring their kids in. So they're using the office as a sort of kind of social arena. Because, you know, it was, it was, you know, the insulation was better, it was carpeted, it was, you know, that was scary. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. It's like, why bother with, with like changing the way we work? Yeah, that's an interesting philosophical question. The reason we bother is because the old system, for all its familiarity, is no longer working because the pace of change is so quick. Um, we need something more flexible and adaptable, and people are no longer accepting the social contract that came with work. Employers can no longer guarantee a job for life. My contemporary came out of university in the 1970s, joined a large bank, and that was them for the next 30, 40 years until they were made redundant on very handsome packages. Companies don't offer job for life anymore. We're portfolio players. We leap around from sector to sector. In a way, designers and architects have always done that, and we've been prototyping the new ways of working. But the fundamentals of the social contract, what economists would call the family formation workforce. You come to work, give your labour, don't complain, do as you're told, accept what we give you in terms of space, settings, tools, protocols, and we will guarantee that you will be economically viable and your family will be economically viable. That's the social contract. It's breaking down. Companies don't guarantee jobs for life. Um, they, a lot of work is, is unevenly distributed. You know, knowledge workers in, in corporate organisations have got too much work and are stressed out. Deliveroo drivers and the service economy have, have got not enough work and on zero-hours contracts and, and part-time 
precarious work. Um, they're stressed out. And so we're not having the era of full-time employment in the way that we did. So the old model simply doesn't work. We've got to go to new ways of working. Mm. And then if you're a property director in a large company, an insurance company or a pharmaceutical company, you think, why am I running a department to run office space? Why can't I go to a hotel group or a co-working operator? They know, they're full of people who know how to put this space together. And I'll put it together much nicer. The coffee will be better and the furniture will be nice. And, you know, I can lease some space at a month at a time because I'm not quite sure whether this team will still be there in a year's time because we're not giving people jobs for life. We're giving people jobs for projects and as long as there's profitability. So they're thinking, why don't I just treat office space as a service that I buy in? And that changes the whole game. So I was wondering, you know, we all have really good intentions, and you know, like uh, the road to, to hell is often like paved with yeah. good intentions. Yeah. I'm just wondering, so have you seen some of these good intentions of like changing the way we work, you know, have unexpected like negative consequences? It's a very interesting question because all technological advances have unintended consequences. When they developed the automobile, they didn't expect, you know, the entire city neighborhoods, very vibrant, walkable, would be wiped out in North America and they put in flyovers and uh, um, that we would have uh, um, a move to the suburbs and a, and a reliance on car use and an incredible kind of development of the road network and an erosion of public transport and the railways. That was an unintended consequence. And I went to a talk quite recently by the veteran urban planner, Ken Greenberg, who was, who was head of urban design for the city of Toronto for many years. Um, Ken Greenberg said we were doing the same with, with digital technology as we were doing with automobile technology. And he said, we perversely keep trying to improve efficiency by reducing interaction. And I thought that was a very interesting take on unintended consequences because the unintended consequence of um, the embrace of the automobile was was the rise of the suburbs the fragmentation of community poor air quality um, pollution um, and digital technology is trying to kind of ease the transactional costs of people physically coming together and allowing us all to um, interact through our digital devices at the expense of human interaction. So I think one of the unintended consequences of the future of work and the digitization of work is that we're all kind of glued to our devices and our screens and we're not interacting as people in the way we probably did in the workplace a generation ago. And once you're distracted, the scope for misadventure and misunderstanding between people becomes stronger. So I think that's one of the big um, unintended consequences. I go into offices and I see people sending emails to each other with headphones on, and they're only sitting five yards away, but they won't stand up and go and walk and talk to each other. And they prefer um, this form of communication. And I think that's a very bad road to go down. 
this is something we actually discussed a lot in, in, in our workplace mm. is that when we cut a day away, mm. we need to be more efficient. And yeah. the efficiency, you know, cuts what, down what, social interaction. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it's doing. I think you yeah. framed it perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we were thinking, how do we get around that? Yeah. I have any thoughts on that? Well, my take on, on being more efficient in four days is not about cutting out the social niceties of being at work because I've only got four days and therefore I'm going to factor out talking to you about last night's football. I think you should do what you've always done, but have an extra day to recover. So I don't think work behaviours should change and be streamlined, but some of the work tools and environments that support you should change um, to help efficiency. So... You know, if you go in on a Monday and think, God, we've only got Thursday night to get it all done, so I'm not going to talk to you even though you've got a problem and you want to talk to me and share it with me, um, and you want to show me a photograph of you, you know, bungee jumping on the weekend or whatever. Um, so I don't think behaviour should change, but I think the supporting mechanisms around people should change. Do you have an example of what they could be? Well, I think that a very simple one to support a four-day week if people want to intensify their productivity of the four-day week, is to provide in-house food to a high quality so that people don't have to go and queue up in Pret or Leon or any of these other places that people go and buy food. Um, so that would take a little bit of strain out of things. Have a dry clean, cleaning service that comes to your desk or sofa or wherever you're working. Um, so you haven't got to go out and collect and take your dry cleaning. Just little services that would help speed up the week for you so that you can really concentrate on work. Yeah. Cool. Do you have any like personal your own tricks and tips for like being efficient that you might want to share? I've been trying to organize myself for the last 40 odd years <laughs> with not fantastic uh, um, uh, success, mainly because I'm a curious person and I take on these roles. Uh, and these are roles that intend setting things up from scratch and trying to build them, uh, as with the Helen Hamlin Centre or Design Week or the Work Tech Academy. And therefore it takes a lot of energy and focus. And, uh, and I think probably, as somebody who's in my 60s, I've probably devoted too much time to work, but I have had a life as well. And I think a relative of mine, when I was studying, I was a student, said, do something with your life that you're really interested in. Try and turn your hobbies and your passions into a way to make a living. Uh, look at the things that, that, that motivate you because you're working for a very long time. And if you're doing something that you're not interested in or you don't enjoy, it'll feel like an eternity. And I really took this advice on board because he was, he was a relative, but he was a... He was a mentor and he was a very intelligent, cultured man. But he was doing something that he wasn't particularly happy with. And he divided life and work very, very strictly. So I think I've paid the penalty in terms of I've worked a lot, but the work I've been doing, I found personally very rewarding. So, you know, I think that's a fair trade. And I picked up, you, you mentioned the word focus. Yes. Like, do you have a like, specific way of becoming focused? Or? Well, I am somebody who, if I really want to focus on writing something, I can't do it in a relaxed 
mode. I can't write a blog or a decent letter or email or anything um, if I'm sitting back. Uh, I've watched other people do it and they have no problem with it. I have to be at a desk with a desk lamp, um, preferably with a bigger screen than my laptop so it's plugged into something, with a proper keyboard, with a mouse and a mouse mat. And that seems to create the setup for me to actually be focused and then I go, I dive into it. Um, and I'm not somebody who works listening to music. I'm not somebody who works well with the television on uh, or the radio on or anything like that. I need silence and I need a proper work setup. And that is hardwired into me from several years of jobs in, in traditional work settings. And also in the newspaper industry, really, where you sat at a desk with a manual typewriter. How, how does that work in like a normal office environment? It works fine. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I have my own study at home, but um, work tech, I'm in a room with lots of different people. But I sit at a table with a proper, with a proper chair and I sit upright and, and I, I, I work at that. Um, I think we're going to round, round off now. Okay. I want to thank you for your, your time, Jeremy. It's, it's been fascinating. I've really enjoyed talking. Um, and I was wondering, how might people follow you if they want to like, hear more about what you do or your interests? They can go to www.worktechacademy.com for the future of work. But check out, too, uh, if you go to the Royal College of Art website, uh, www.rca.ac.uk, um, and look for Helen, search for Helen Hammond Centre, you'll see some of the research projects we've got going on there. Excellent. We'll, we'll put links to that yeah, in, okay. in, in the podcast. Great. Okay, fine. Great. Thank Good. you. Thanks Pleasure. Yeah.